0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk...
1: If you agree with everything, you can't say no to anything.
0: Is it all relative? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but what about morality?
1: You rub the jewelers, turn one of your lovers over to the police, kept the other one on to help you find the diamonds, and when he does, you commit perjury in the high court, right? Come
2: on, Archie, everybody does it in America. Is truth in the eye of the beholder?
1: Does believing
0: something to be so make it so?
3: You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You may be right. I may be crazy.
2: Is it all relative? Our guest is
0: Paul Bogosian, author of Fear of Knowledge, Against Relativism and Constructivism.
2: You may be wrong for all I know, but you may be right. Is it all relative? Coming up on Philosophy Talk.
0: Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing
2: conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today... Is it all just relative? Well, clearly some things are just relative. Tastes in food or matters of etiquette, for example.
0: Right, if you like single malt scotch, and I don't, there's no basis for saying that one of us is right and the other is wrong about how good
2: it tastes. Taste is just relative to our individual taste buds. There's no universal truth, even about single malt scotch. The same goes for etiquette, except that etiquette is relative to cultures or subcultures rather than to individual people and their taste buds. I'm told that in some societies a gentle burp after a meal is a polite way of expressing satisfaction, but not in ours. But there's really no basis for saying that one culture has a right about burps and the other one has a wrong.
0: And our question today is everything, like etiquette and matters of taste, relative. That
2: is, are truth, knowledge, and morality also relative? I think that question's easy. The answer is no. Some things are obviously not relative. There are some universal or absolute truths. Believing something to be true does not make it true. Well, what about morality, though? Well, there are two. I mean, take Hitler, please. Hitler was a really bad man. That's a fact. He and his Nazi followers might have thought it was morally good to slaughter the Jews. Maybe they sincerely thought that. But their thinking that it was so did not make it so. So
0: I don't think it's so obvious to most people that truth and morality are absolute or universal rather than relative, the way you say. Scratch any 17-year-old college freshman, for example, and you know what you're going to get out. You're going to get out reflex relativism. They tend to think that each of us has his own moral code and that nobody is really entitled to question anybody else's moral code.
2: Well, I think they feel they ought to be taught and they confuse tolerance with relativism You ought to have respect for other people's opinions At, at least till uh, you're sure They're really nutcases But that doesn't mean you're a relativist Now these teenagers may talk like relativists But when push comes to shove They won't act like relativists uh, Pope Benedict, for one, disagrees with you about this
0: He sees relativism everywhere He decries it as the main enemy of the church He laments that Western civilization is being destroyed By, quote, the dictatorship of relativism
2: But look Take something real, like female genital mutilation or the criminalization of homosexuality and really bad treatment of homosexuals in certain African countries. Now, when we're faced with that, you or I or, or the teenager, if we're a relativist, we have to say, oh, well, we think that's wrong, so it's wrong relative to us, but it's not wrong relative to that. But that's not what we say. What we supposedly relativistic secular Westerners really do is we say, that's wrong, it ought to stop. We don't shrug our shoulders with indifference and say, well, that's how they do things over there. No,
0: you're right. Most of us feel moral outrage, real moral outrage at
2: such things. Precisely. But
0: how does that show that we aren't really relativists? I mean, look, most arguments for relativism begin by observing that some cultures endorse things like female genital mutilation, while other cultures prohibit such things.
2: Well, that's a beginning point, but the argument can't end there. The relativist has to show not only that there are these different moral outlooks, but that in some way they're all equally valid, like taste or etiquette, and that disputes among them can't be really rationally adjudicated. so I see where you're going with this. You think that the
0: very fact that we express moral outrage over things like female genital mutilation in other cultures shows that we don't really regard all moral systems as equally valid, as relativism
2: seems to require. Right. We regard some systems as superior to others, as closer to the real universal, moral truth of the matter.
0: But isn't that... Why isn't that just a form of intolerant arrogance or cultural imperialism on our part?
2: Oh, Ken, you're talking like a true would-be relativist and missing my point. But what is your point? The differences in moral systems are not like the differences in taste or rules of etiquette. In case of taste and etiquette, we say, to each his own, live and let live. But when it comes to significant moral issues, we think there's a right and wrong in the matter. Torturing innocent children is wrong for any culture. The same with female genital mutilation. Now, we may or may not be certain where the truth lies in a particular case. But then we try to engage in further argument and investigation to find out the truth.
0: So you're saying that the bare fact that we greet moral disagreement with arguments rather than automatic acceptance or indifference shows that we aren't really relativists? That is my view exactly. But look, I want to try a thought experiment on you. Why can't a relativist just have a preference, a pure preference, that others share his or her moral outlook? And a preference like that, wouldn't that itself give the relativist a reason to invite further argument in the face of these differences and disagreements? And couldn't he or she have such a preference, even if he thought that there was no absolute truth of the matter? I just prefer it if we
2: all disagree. Well, as always, Ken, you've raised a good question. Let's put it to our guest, along with some other questions. He is Paul Bogosian, author of Fear of Knowledge Against Relativism and Constructivism. Paul will join us in just a little bit. But first, a roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, talks to
0: a defender of
3: relativism. She files this report. It is extremely common to hail anthropologists to defend relativism.
1: Charles Briggs is an anthropologist at UC Berkeley. He spent a lot of time with indigenous communities in South America, and he specializes in folklore. I asked him to talk about relativism from an anthropological point of view.
3: I remember in graduate school, sitting in a bar next to the University of Chicago, having a raging debate with a philosophy student who was defending universalism against the charge of relativism.
1: Briggs doesn't see himself as a straight up relativist, but he criticizes the idea
3: that anybody who sees the world in different ways somehow got it wrong and we must convince them, whether it might be through argumentation, education, or war, that they're simply wrong.
1: Briggs is trained in biomedical anthropology, so when his friends in an indigenous community in eastern Venezuela said they wanted to train him to become a shaman, he resisted.
3: I had to memorize 300 stories hundreds of songs i had to learn how to touch people's bodies and feel within them what i was taught to look for as spirits i was always a non-smoker and i had to smoke cigars that were often half an inch or more wide and two-thirds of a meter long to where i almost couldn't crawl back to my hammock at night i was so intoxicated
1: as a shaman, Briggs said he had to suspend his disbelief, but in the end, he became a pretty successful healer.
3: And what was remarkable was that in spite of my skepticism, in spite of my resistance, I, learned, I had dreams in which I would see people who lived around me and would intervene in the middle of my dream in the morning remarkably find out that they had been extremely ill the night before and that somehow in the course of the night, powerful symptoms somehow had been relieved.
1: Briggs can't explain why this kind of healing seemed to work, but he knows it doesn't always. Take the cholera outbreak in eastern Venezuela.
3: It was 1994. An infectious bacterial disease, cholera, had killed uh, at that point something like 500 people. This is an easily prevented and treatable disease that should kill no one at this day and age.
1: The Venezuelan health authorities blamed the indigenous people for spreading the disease.
3: The indigenous people, known as Wadao, believed more in spirits than in germs. They trusted more their own healers than they trusted people within the clinics.
1: The cholera epidemic illustrates the clash between modern medicine and indigenous ways of healing.
3: We needed a dialogue between clinical medicine and epidemiology, as well as an understanding of how it is within the indigenous healing system and working with a healer there to understand how people conceive of illness.
1: This idea of judging one culture by the values or ideas of another happens all the time. For example, Briggs interviewed women charged with infanticide, one of the worst crimes in Venezuelan culture.
3: One woman was particularly compelling. She said, I was raped. I hid the pregnancy because I was afraid of what my family and others would say. I was terrified. I gave birth on the 10th floor of an apartment building and I opened the window and I threw out my newborn baby. The woman
1: here was clearly wrong. She should not have killed her baby. But Briggs doesn't quite look at it that way.
3: Either the violence that had been done to that young woman on the edge of the rainforest or that this woman said she herself had done to her baby will never be explicable. But how might we collaborate in being able to understand different points of view that would not condone acts that might be hard to justify in moral terms, but that would enable us to live together in society in more just sorts of ways.
1: For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch.
0: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.